Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark, the first chapter, and this week and next week we'll be able to close out our study of this first chapter as we look this morning at the proof and purpose in Jesus' life, specifically a few busy hours in the life of our Lord. Now, a little context before I read the text for us. Jesus has just taught with authority, not like the scribes. He didn't have lots of footnotes. He didn't have lots of quotes. He spoke from his own authority in the synagogue. He walks into the synagogue, assumes the teaching position, teaches, and they're amazed. And he also casts a demon out of a man, which always begs the question to me, what was this guy with a demon going to church for? What was he going to synagogue for? But he was there nonetheless for the glory of God. He cast him out. That's important because of what happens in verse 29 and the connection with the word and. So this just happened. It's Saturday morning. They just finished the synagogue service and, verse 29, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. He healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. As most of you who know me know, I am an incurable sports fan. I grew up playing sports. I'm a better spectator than I was an athlete, but I love sports. And it's one of the oddest things to me, for me to say is, and so does my wife now. Uh, we moved here in uh, 2011, and uh, we had had a couple of decades of a marriage where I thought, you know, she likes Jane Austen. I like ESPN. This is just the way God has made us. And something happened where she began following the royals, and and now she knows more than I do about them. If you have any questions about the royals, you can ask Kim, and I'm sure she can, she can fill you in. 
Well, in the 1980s, there came on the scene an athlete, the likes of which I've never seen before or since. His speed, his quickness, his, his instincts, his eye-hand coordination, his strength, his intelligence, his stamina were like nothing I had ever seen before, nor were they like anything anyone in sports had ever seen before. No athlete in America had ever raised the attention like this man of sports writers, coaches. I'm no expert, but I think he was the greatest athlete of our generation. He was a Heisman Trophy winner in college football and an all-star in college baseball. He would go on to be a pro bowler in professional football and an all-star in professional baseball. If you've been a long-time fan in Kansas City, you know who I'm speaking about. You figured it out by now. We're talking about Bo Jackson. What made Bo Jackson so special was not that he was good at some things. What made Bo Jackson special is he was good at everything. He was a a um, uh, two-sport All-American in high school and played professional baseball and professional football. I remember my dad telling me, Ricky, you will never see another athlete like this in your lifetime. I think he was right. Jackson would unfortunately suffer an injury that would end his careers in football and baseball, professional sports, and perhaps the greatest sports mystery of our generation is just how good he could have been had he stayed healthy. Most believe the record books on in both um, sports, would have been completely rewritten by Bo Jackson. I was never so amazed watching any athlete as I was watching Bo Jackson play sports. But Bo Jackson was an athlete, merely an athlete. Imagine what it would have been like when Jesus came on the scene in Galilee. He didn't amaze people with his athletic prowess. But I, if I can use my sanctified imagination for a moment, it's not hard to imagine that the perfect man was not an exceptional athlete. To say that he was good at everything is an understatement. Bo was good at sports stuff. Jesus was good at everything he did. Morally perfect could heal any deformity or any disease. He could rid people of demons. He could control the weather. He could walk on water. And how about this? He could raise dead people. That qualifies to me as someone of whom a documentary should be written. No man who ever lived amazed the sons of Adam like Jesus of Nazareth. No one. I've seen several documentaries about Bo Jackson. It's it's fun to watch. And at the end of all these documentaries, it's what would have been like had he not been hurt. It's just interesting speculation. And everyone says that's okay. And he's come and he's gone. And we're now on to other athletes that we compare him to. And 
It's just kind of a flash in the pan. Can you imagine the documentaries that could and would have been produced about Jesus had the television medium or the movie industry been around at Jesus' time? Obviously, no televisions to broadcast documentaries about him, no movie theaters to show a big screen uh, account of his life. So how in the world would the wonders, the works, the words of Jesus be documented, captured? How would his amazement be documentarized and broadcast to the world? Very simply, in four ways. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've chosen for the next few years to study Mark's account of the life of Jesus. If you were, Mark's documentary about Jesus. Over and over we're presented with what he's like and what he did and what he said. And to see that he is amazing and to be certain that we are amazed. Now in our text for today, we're going to meet Mark and see him recording and highlighting a few hours in Jesus' life. Actually, an, uh, an afternoon, an evening, and a morning and into the afternoon of the next day. Basically, 24 hours or so in the life of our Lord. And they were busy hours, as I'm sure all of his days were jam-packed. In fact, the paragraph before us uncovers the busyness of Jesus and in the middle of his busyness highlights his purpose and his priorities. Anytime you find yourself listing into a busy season of life or into a busy day, just know this. Never are our values and priorities so apparent than when we become busy. And we certainly see that in the life of Jesus here on the north shore of Galilee. Now, as we unpack this paragraph, we're going to follow Jesus through these hours just simply chronologically. I'm going to show you some, show you some textual markers, and we're just going to follow the different parts of the day. The first thing we're going to see is a, in the busy few hours of Jesus' life is an eventful afternoon. An eventful afternoon healing and lunch at Peter's house. Verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, remember it's Saturday morning, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon is Peter. Peter and Andrew with James and John. It has already been a most eventful morning. Jesus had preached a sermon, assuming the authority that people had, an authority that people had never heard before. He was teaching differently than their religious experts, the scribes, the, the theologues, the theologians of that day. He was one who spoke with absolute authority and needed to quote no one except the scripture. And as we saw in Matthew, would say things like, you've heard it said, quoting scripture, but I say, adding the meaning and the interpretation of the scripture from his own heart. Earlier, Jesus had called four men, two sets of brothers, Peter or Simon and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John. 
They had been at worship with him in the synagogue this morning. They heard the sermon that was with authority. They, they, they saw the demon obey him and cast out of this man. And no doubt they were as astonished with Jesus as the other worshipers were that morning. And interestingly, the text tells us something that we all understand. Almost always on Sunday afternoon, what is your first question? At least what is your kid's first question? What's for lunch? Where are we going to lunch? What did mom make for lunch? What did dad make for lunch? What are you going to do for my lunch? That is not unique to our generation. They leave synagogue and they go to Peter's house for, as we'll see in a minute, for lunch. Now, it's time for us as a group to learn a Greek word. We've already encountered it, but you need to learn it because it's going to be one that's going to come back and visit us so often in our study of Mark. I want you to say it with me. We're going to have a little Greek lesson here. Euthus. Say that. Euthus. Remember this. Euthus. One more time. Euthus is a really important Greek word. And the reason it's important is Mark uses it a lot. It's translated immediately or just then. And he just stacks pericope upon pericope, paragraph upon paragraph, story and narrative upon themselves with this little connector. And immediately, just then. And this paragraph starts out just then and immediately. Euthus. You might be interested to know it occurs 11 times in the first chapter, more than 40 times in the gospel as a whole. In verses 21 to 38 of chapter 1, euthus or immediately occurs five times. It's important that you see he's saying in a hurry, immediately, happened just then. What happened just then? They immediately went to Peter's house. Now, I, I want to confess something to you. I've been to Israel twice, once on more of a tour tour and once on a three-week intensive study tour where you spent all morning studying. You, in the afternoon, you went and visited the sites and in the, in the evening, you took tests about it. One of the places that we visited, and if you've been to Galilee, you have no doubt visited this, this site is what's commonly known as Peter's house. How many of you have been to Peter's house? Those of you, everyone who's been to Israel has no doubt been to Peter's house. Now, what strikes me as interesting is it's a rock's throw, literally a few hundred yards from the synagogue. Just a few minutes walk. Now, I have to admit that I am always suspicious when I'm in Israel and a guide says, this is the place where X and Y happen because we just don't know that that is the place. There's a few places. One of my favorite places is the Southern Steps on the Temple Mount because you know for certain that's where Paul preached. This is where Jesus walked. That was the entry. It's the same place. The reason I bring this up is I'm, I'm, I was curiously struck by, by uh, 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 an expert who I was with on the study tour, who gave us insight beyond our tour guide about this house. And he actually believes this is likely Peter's house. And I remember saying, how do you know this was Peter's house? 
there's a rule in Israel. If you find church upon church upon church in the archaeological digs and you find early, it's called graffiti, but pictures and writings on the wall that date back to the first and the second century, it's likely that that's a site because those people would have known most and venerated that site. This is one of those sites. I can't tell you for certain that it was Peter's house, but it certainly fits the description and also the, the archaeological indicators might inform us that this was probably Peter's house. And if it wasn't there, it was certainly close by. Walked out of the synagogue over to Peter's house for lunch. Verse 30. Now, Peter's, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Get the scene here. Synagogue's over. They have some talk. They, they talk to people just like you and I would have. They're talking about Jesus. I'm sure someone said, hey, my cousin, my sister, my uncle has a demon, has a problem. What, what, I'm sure that he didn't just kind of float in and float out. Jesus being amazingly social and the perfect man would have no, no doubt interacted with people. So would these two sets of brothers. The talking is done. They go to Peter's for lunch. And upon entering the house, we find that Peter's mother-in-law is lying very gravely ill and sick with a fever. Now, before we get into the miracle, we need to make an important observation about the first pope. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. Those who say that Peter was the first pope. Popes can't be married, neither can priests. Um, Peter was married and he had a mother-in-law. That means at some point he had a wife. Good class. Now, I did look up a few Catholic commentaries on this passage this week, and they were insisting that Peter was not married because he was the first pope and his wife had obviously died and that the reference to Peter's mother-in-law is, and without showing his wife in this passage, is proof that his wife had died, therefore he was now um, uh, qualified to be a pope. I'm not making that up. They say that if Peter's wife were there, she would obviously have been there and helping with lunch, and we would have noticed her. Further, have you ever noticed... Have you ever noticed with a careful eye a little phrase in 1 Corinthians 9 that explicitly says that Peter, Peter was not a widower? His wife was not only alive, she traveled with him on the missionary journeys that Peter went on. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Paul says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter, explicitly says that Peter traveled with his wife. Anyway, back to the miracle. Of all the miracles in the book of Mark, healing a, healing a fever seems to be a little anticlimactic. 
you're going to see Jesus do some amazing things. In the next chapter, in the next paragraph, next week, I almost said next week, Jesus is going to heal a leper. Next week, we're going to study Jesus healing a leper. Then the next chapter, he's going to hear a paralytic. And you see all these, these miracles and you think, these are amazing. Why is this in here that this lady had a fever and he healed her? Whose mother-in-law was this? Peter's. Where did Mark get his information about Jesus? Peter. Do you think this was important to Peter? You bet it was. Do you think little miracles are little miracles? We have to be careful not to compare Verse 31, and he came to her. Jesus comes to her, takes her by the hand, and the Greek is emphatic, and the fever instantly left. How do we know that we're at lunch? Because the term, and she waited on them, is a Greek colloquialism, and she served them food. She prepared them lunch. There's something simple but crucial to see here in the way that Jesus approaches this healing and the one in the next paragraph and the one in chapter 2. He touches her. If you were sick, certainly next week we'll see if you had leprosy. If you were ill, you were declared ceremonially and by health reasons unclean. You didn't want to get close to these people. We do the same thing today, don't we? You have, a, you have a coffee of the flu. Would you please stand over there? Please don't, don't come to school or church if you have the flu. In fact, they understood something that we understand, which is to have a fever meant that you were contagious. And he goes over and takes her by the hand. If you think that's impressive, Wait till you see next week what he does to a leper who is highly contagious. Verse 41 tells us he touches the leper as well. No fear that he would get a fever. No fear he would get whatever Peter's mother-in-law had. He takes her by the hand, helps her to sit, helps her to stand, and the fever immediately leaves her. And she starts making lunch. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you have had the flu this season or have had a cold this season. But if you've had the flu, if you've had a fever, if you've been sick and you get well, it takes you a while to feel well. Not Peter's mom. I love how sweet the commentator William Hendrickson describes this scene. Let me just read it to you. He says, Jesus had lifted her up, but now of a sudden, all of a sudden, the fever left her as all three evangelists state. Moreover, she did not even say, I'm rid of the fever and completely exhausted. Nothing of the kind. On the contrary, one moment just before Jesus had taken her by the hand and rebuked the fever, there were Still flushes on her cheek and the burning of hot skin, profuse sweating, dryness of the throat, or else, depending on what kind of fever, there may have even been violent shivering. 
The next moment, every fever symptom had vanished completely. And not only was the woman's temperature normal, but such a surge of new strength was coursing through her entire being that she herself insisted on getting up. In fact, she actually got up and started to perform the duties of a busy hostess. She began to wait on all of those present, end quote. Why is this important? Well, a lot of reasons, but one reason, he healed this woman of a fever. He wasn't only concerned about doing massive miracles that would make the front page. He cared about Peter. He cared about his mother-in-law. He cared about his friend Peter's wife. They asked him to heal her. She did. He did. He demonstrates sensitive concern of these first disciples. Now just, I don't want to be psychological, but relationally, can you understand the impact this would have made on these four men? The trust it would have imbued to them, the, the, the faithfulness and the loyalty this would have generated? Can you imagine if Jesus would have said, no, I want the bigger stuff. Bring me the lame and the blind. What a fever. I'm always amazed at Jesus' care and attention. Now, the rest of the afternoon is spent in Peter's house, but the evening is about to be far from restful. Let's come to now, number two, a crowded evening. A crowded evening. More healings, casting out demons, verse 32. When evening came after the sun set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. There's a lot of confusion about who the they were. Were the they these four men? Were the they all the city? I think it was probably both. If you knew a man who could heal anything, wouldn't you find someone who needed healing to bring to Jesus? I love verse 33. The whole city gathered at the door. I remember when our boys were young. I remember in the old days when my boys were shorter than me. When we would go to the zoo, I remember specifically being at the Los Angeles Zoo. And we went, went into the, um, the snake place where there's a big round building with all sorts of aquariums where you could see these snakes. and Everyone was lined up around the, the Burmese python. Massive snake. And for some reason that morning, I remember distinctly, it was active and crawling around and slithering around. And, and there were a dozen or more people around this thing and we couldn't see. And I remember my little boy's being ever so rude and worming their way through the crowd to get to the front. They had to see what was, that's the door. Imagine people standing at the door. They, get out of the way. I'm sicker than he is. Let's set the context here. 
why does it say this happened when evening came? Why wouldn't it happen in the afternoon? Why weren't they disturbed during lunch? That's important. And this is going to play out a significant narrative moving forward with Jesus being accused of doing things on the Sabbath that he would not have done. This is the Sabbath day. When did the Sabbath end? At dark. Why do you think they waited till then? They didn't want to violate the Sabbath. By the way, Jesus will, has already violated the Sabbath by casting out the demon that morning, and he will do it over and over. The Sabbath would have ended at sunset. Remember that as you read the Gospels, and whether or not Jesus can and should do miracles on the Sabbath becomes a very big deal in the Gospel writer's narrative. Our guide, Mark, is building a case that people continued to misunderstand the meaning and the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. The crowds, the religious leaders were blind to who he was and why he was doing what he was doing, the wonders and the miracles and what they meant. Now, let's just, I think Mark intends for us to visit with our imaginations. Here's a man who had cast out demons that morning, had just healed a woman with a fever. They had already heard that he had done other miracles. The synoptics tell us, healed the lame, touched the dying. So they brought to him the people who were dear to them. And for the most part, he healed them. He sent out demons of the demon-possessed. But just like we saw last week, he, he does the unexpected. This is not what a politician does in wanting to point to all they've done. Verse 34. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases. Can I just say before we go on, we'll see this more and more in Mark Various diseases. There was no one standing at the side of the stage pulling out people who would obviously embarrass a healer if he couldn't heal demonstrably and immediately. No filter, no stage hand. He healed many who were ill with various, multivarious diseases. He cast out many demons. No other indication of what these people were struggling or suffering from. But here's the point. And Jesus, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. We saw this first last week, right? This is what, what theologians call the uh, uh, the, the secrecy, secrecy motif in the life of the Lord. Why does he keep doing these things and telling these demons don't tell anybody? And, and, and that's not enough, by the way. Four times he would perform miracles and commanded silence of the people to whom he had performed them. Cleansing of a leper in 144, raising of the dead girl in 543, healing a deaf mute in 736, healing a blind man in 826. He would do all these healings and say, shh, don't tell anybody. Two times he told the disciples themselves, 
remain silent about what you know about me. Add to that, Jesus two times withdraws from the crowds to escape detection, 724 and 930, attempting to be secret. And as certain as these attempts to secrecy are, the commands to silence should also be as certain. And here's what we find out. None of them obeyed. (laughs) We're going to study this secrecy motif over and over. Mark keeps highlighting it. Why did Jesus tell the demons to be quiet? Why would he tell these people who he's healed to be quiet? I told you last week. Because that wasn't the message. His message wasn't, I can, feel, I can feed thousands and I can heal any disease, so come and be my, my, citizens and my, my citizen in my kingdom. His message was his payment and atonement for sin and his resurrection from the dead. We'll find out later he'll tell John after, he says, after I'm dead, tell everyone everything. Because that's now put in the context of his death and resurrection and ascension. Not in isolation of it as just a health and wealth Messiah. Busy evening, huh? We don't know how late it went. But I can't imagine it started after dark And I can't imagine with all the city at the door that it lasted 20 or 30 minutes. Can you? Point is, this no doubt went late into the evening. That's important to remember remember because number three, now we find a solitary morning. Alone in prayer and resolute in purpose. It's important that you connect the verses. This happens after dark. It happens at night. All the city was there. Mark is painting uh, uh, the, 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 the picture and giving us the impression that this was a long night. And still, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. There were no alarm clocks In this day, no iPhone. Your iPhone will click over to daylight saving time next week. I search it every year. I just want to let you know that. It's dark. It's early in the morning. Pre-dawn, he gets up, left the house, went to a secluded place, and was praying there. Listen, if you underline verses in your Bible, if you highlight verses in your Bible, if you put stars and Asterisk spire your, your verses in the Bible. This is one to mark. This is such an entire lesson in one verse. This verse humbles me. This verse motivates me. This verse instructs me. And I'll be honest, this verse rebukes me. In the middle of a tornado of activity... A busy morning, a late night. Jesus still gets up before dawn and seeks out time alone with his father in prayer. The temptation is to pull this verse out from its context and just preach on it. And and frankly, there's there's some merit to that. But can we just pull the car over for a moment, just for a moment, and look at this verse? So many lessons to draw out. 
Never was there a busier or more important person than Jesus Christ. But no one prioritized solitude and prayer in the middle of a busy existence any more so than did our Lord. So many lessons flow out of verse 35. I love this. Mornings are a good time for prayer, private prayer. Oh, evenings are fine, and so are the afternoons, and so is the morning. But early in the morning is really good. You know why? You find out why in this text. Nobody messes with you. I love getting up early because the phone doesn't ring and the texts don't ping early in the morning. Jesus gets up. Nobody knew he left. You'll find out. They were looking for him. They didn't know what happened, so they're sleeping in. And he uses the morning, the first and best hours of his day in prayer. We can also see that prayer should be a priority in the busiest of times. Busyness, listen, is never a legitimate excuse not to pray. I know you're busy. I know you got a lot to do. I know there are assignments that you have to do. I know that work goes early and starts early and goes late. I know that you have family. I know you have kids. I know you have friends. I know you have activities. I know you have entertainment. You and I don't have anything near what the Lord had in busyness. And he gets up before dawn goes to a lonely place to pray. I love this too. No one is too important to pray. Wouldn't you think being a member of the Trinity, he'll just say, see you in heaven in eternity. We'll have a lot of time to talk then. We remember that God, that Jesus is God. Don't forget that he's a man. And he demonstrates perfect submission in his prayer life in this scene. How about this? Prayer is first private before it is public. And how about this? Prayer is most, excuse me, prayer is important enough for inconvenient sacrifices. If this night went late and he got up early to pray, several of us were talking this week, we on the staff, some of you men also, we had, you know, Late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, late Thursday morning, early Friday morning, and we're just shot. I look back at the busyness of my week and didn't think, hmm, I need to get up extra early because my night went, night went extra late so I can get a head start on the day in prayer. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours of it in prayer. Should we just all leave in conviction right now? Wow. If we were to be Christ-like, and this is how Christ prayed, what does that inform you and me about the timing and intensity and priority of prayer? Verse 36, Simon, which is Peter, and his companions searched for him. That lets us know that he didn't tell them he was going to do this. He, didn't, he got up before they were awake. They get up. He's not there. Now, knowing what you know about Jesus, and you're, you're one of these four brothers, wouldn't you say, where did he go? So they searched for him, and they found him and said to him, if you were to want to put the vernacular in here, dude, something like that. Everyone is looking for you. And 
Don't you think they would? Can you imagine all the people who were healed the night before go home and tell everybody who tells other people, who tells other people who are sick and lame and blind and deaf and dumb and where's that guy? Everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, build a stage and let me do my thing. No, he didn't say that. Let's go somewhere else. That's just so counterintuitive. Let's go somewhere else. Why? Why go somewhere else? He tells us where the towns nearby are along the seashore of Lake Galilee. Why? Why? Why, Jesus? So you can heal everybody? So you can be the, the miracle worker? Listen to what he says. So that I may preach there also. Here's his purpose. For that is what I came for. So begins the case and the chase for the Son of God around the northern shores of Galilee. I think Jesus knew that that still holds true today. If you want to be alone, you probably need to get up early to do so, and when they find you, they're going to want to be with you and use you and extract from you what you have to offer. Notice there's something powerfully significant in verse 38. Jesus tells us through Mark's pen, this is my purpose. I came not to heal and to feed. I came to preach. He explicitly says that was his purpose. Jesus' wonders, Jesus' miracles, his deeds were shadowlands of his words and message. I think we should be amazed by what Jesus did. But we will end up being changed by what he said. Verse 39 is a hinge verse. It belongs to the paragraph we're looking at and also introduces the next paragraph we'll look at next week. He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. He repeats what had just happened in this, in Capernaum, in the local synagogues around shores of Galilee, teaching with authority, casting out demons. It says he went into the synagogues, but you'll soon see that his message was not just contained and relegated to Jews. What do you do with this? What do you tuck into your heart and walk out of the building with today? Well, in one sense, I, I, whatever the Holy Spirit has convicted you of, but can I offer you a few things that, that were imprinted on my heart studying this passage? First of all, if demons and disease obey Jesus, shouldn't we? If demons and disease, if evil obeys Jesus, what about the righteous? What about us who are sons of God who've been adopted, Romans 8, by the power of Christ? Where is Jesus' authority in our lives? How many of your decisions, how many of your values are daily and hourly submitted to him? Where is the authority of Jesus when you're making 
decisions. A second thing that stood out to me is if Jesus wanted and needed to pray, how much do we need and want to pray? There are two things. Listen, learn this 30 plus years of ministry. If you ever want to guarantee conviction on an audience of Bible-believing lovers of Jesus, all you have to preach on is either evangelism, because no one ever does enough of it, or prayer, because no one is ever content with their prayer life. And if you are, our prayer room will be open at the, at the end of the service, and we will pray for your pride. I have never met anyone in my life who looked at me and said, you know what, my prayer life's the best, nothing to improve, got it wired, got it down, maybe you want to come and learn from me. He stands out as such an amazing example. And listen, do we need to say the obvious? If the Son of God wanted and needed to pray to the Father, how much more do we need to and do we want to make the important sacrifices to give Him time? The busier you are, the more you need to pray. Thirdly, do we see the true purpose of Jesus? What's going to happen for for the next dozen chapters in Mark is they're going to miss his purpose. They're going to see him just as people turn on TBN and watch the health and wealth preachers there. I want a relationship with God so that he will give me X, Y, and Z. They misunderstood. And we have to be careful not to do the same. Do we desire to be changed by what he said more than we have the desire to be amazed by what he did? A few weeks ago, I watched another documentary on Bo Jackson and Full Confession. It was about the third time I've seen it. But it was still interesting. It was still interesting to me because I'm so taken by the athleticism of Mr. Jackson. (laughs) Listen, when you and I read Mark or anything else about Christ in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in the Old Testament that points to the Savior, are we still interested? Are you taken by how amazing our Savior really is? If you're honest, you'll say not nearly enough, and so would I, which is why we have Mark to tell us the things that will draw us ever closer to love and worship the Son of God. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, if you have questions about the authority of Jesus in your life, if you want to know how to be a Christian, how to have your sins forgiven, have eternal hope, our prayer room is going to be open in a few minutes. Welcome to make your way to your left, my right, and meet with Steve and Debbie. They love to talk with you and pray with you about anything that's on your heart. Father, please (laughs) woo us to Jesus through Mark's pen. 
In Jesus' name, amen.